Chapter 1 Triple X Tattoo I had the idea for what was to become Tattoo the Earth at 3.45 on November 18, 1998, at Triple X Tattoo in New York City. Sean Vasquez was finishing a tattoo on my calf that he had started a few weeks earlier in New Orleans, and we were continuing a conversation about what I should do next with my life. My business career had just gone bust in spectacular fashion, and I wanted to do something unusual, something that had never been done before, something like the greatest freak show on earth, like a giant S&M Woodstock, or a festival that combined tattooing and body art with rock bands. I'll call it Tattoo the Earth, I blurted out. Sean stopped tattooing my leg and looked up at me, his glasses slipping down on his nose. The sudden silence of his machine stopping in the absence of pain made it feel like I'd stepped into another dimension. I took a deep breath. I've had a few epiphanies like this in my life. The last had been ten years prior, when I knew it was time to get off drugs. For a long while, anyways, I'd said, I'm done, and quit cold turkey. This time I said, tattoo the earth. I kept riffing on the idea while Sean finished the tattoo, envisioning what Tattoo the Earth would look like and feel like, what bands might play it, which tattoo artists would be there, could it be done outside, can you tattoo outside, and on and on. After he finished my tattoo, Sean and I went to dental domination night at an underground nightclub in the meatpacking district called Mother. Mother was a trip. They threw parties like Click Plus Drag, Meat, and the Click Club, and would soon close as gentrification crept from Soho and Tribeca into the neighborhood. It was just like what had happened in the East Village the previous decade when developers wiped out a whole host of clubs and bars along with the lovable, degenerate character of these places. While two dominatrixes dressed as nurses fake pulled a tooth from a writhing patient with a giant pair of pliers, I was spewing out tattoo-the-earth ideas as if possessed shouting in Sean's ear to overcome blaring techno and dental screams, I laid out a whole plan for a type of tattoo festival that had never been done before. Sean did tattoo conventions all over the world, so he knew what was already out there. What I was talking about, a mainstream tattoo and music festival, had never been attempted before. Nothing even close. I'd met Sean six months earlier, the morning I told my boss and best friend to go fuck himself, quit my job, and walked across West 36th Street to Sean's shop, Triple X Tattoo. There, Sean inscribed a tribal tattoo on my left wrist to commemorate that pivotal moment in my life, one I hoped would lead to positive changes. It was also the first tattoo I'd gotten that wasn't hidden by my t-shirt. He opened his shop right after the law banning tattooing in New York City had been overturned the year before. The ban had been enacted in 1961 after a hepatitis B outbreak, though there was scant evidence tattooing had anything to do with the outbreak. Tattooing was considered a gutter business and an easy target for a public health victory. For the next 36 years, tattooing in the five boroughs took place in illegal shops and private apartments, unregulated and underground. I'd walked past Sean's shop hundreds of times going in and out of my office, but on that day I was inside and Sean was there at the front desk. Though he didn't usually take customers without an appointment, he had some time and before I knew it, he was working on my wrist. 
Triple X Tattoo had a fantastic vibe, and I dug it the minute I walked the one flight up a narrow staircase and entered. The waiting area was bohemian and super chill. Sean's partner was a fine artist, and his artwork, including many enormous pieces inspired by traditional tattoo art, hung all over the walls. There were also various examples of carny tattoo memorabilia and a giant green velvet sofa that swallowed you whole. Even though Sean's own shop rules specified that pot was to be smoked on the fire escape right outside his workspace in the back, he usually smoked inside and the whole shop constantly reeked of cannabis and hash. It reminded me of the coffee shops in Amsterdam. The shop was designed for people to hang out and get comfortable, and that's exactly what everyone did. Sean tattooed in the back office, and he held court there like a Buddha. He'd close his door, but people were constantly stopping in to talk, or get high, or just hang. So eventually, he'd just leave it open. Everyone wanted to be with Sean, and his office was always filled with clients, friends, dealers, other artists, apprentices, or anyone who fell into his orbit. Sean had that thing that just attracted people to him. Women, men, platonic crushes, fans, and he knew how to handle it. I'd had success as a promoter and club owner in the music business when I was younger, and Sean reminded me of a rock star, one of those people who knew everyone wanted to suck his dick, but also knew how to handle it without becoming a total jerk. He was my age, around 40, Hispanic, tall, with vivid green eyes. He was a commanding presence, graying temples and goatee, large plugs in his ears, tattoos all over his body, including a tribal piece hand tattooed with a stick on his Adam's apple. He looked like a badass, and he was, but he was also intelligent and cerebral, soft-spoken and vulnerable, and oozed sexuality. Sean had left his wife, kid, and regular boring job to become a tattoo artist, travel the world, and finally be the person he'd always wanted to be. He had exceeded beyond his expectations and was now one of the leading artists in the world. Sean was just what I needed at this point in my life. His empathy and his focus while he was tattooing made him a skilled listener. Tattoo artists were like piano players and place kickers. You hold on tight when you find a good one. I was content to just get tattoos from Sean for the rest of my life. And the bonus was I also found a friend though I wasn't sure I wanted a new one. I had just had my greatest professional success, but was betrayed by my closest friend. I met Jeff in drug rehab in 1987, and we clicked immediately. We were the same age, grew up in the same town, liked the same music, and were both strung out on drugs. We stayed clean in Narcotics Anonymous and became inseparable over the next 10 years. We were the best man at each other's weddings. We were like brothers. After a time, I started working at the consulting company he owned, which was growing at a rapid pace. I found success there, and the combined goal of building something big and great only seemed to bring us closer together. Jeff became wealthy when the company went public. I did okay and was poised to run the entire thing when I found out he'd lied to me and had screwed me out of a significant amount of money. I had never been anything but loyal to him and devoted to his family and business and I was fucking devastated. And though my wife Betsy had been saying for months beforehand that he was going to screw me, and I saw him doing it to everyone else, I never thought he would do it to me. 
and for no reason other than greed and to exert control. He thought I'd shake it off because of our friendship and be grateful for what I got, but I told him to fuck off and never spoke to him again. Back at Mother, Sean Vasquez and I were drunk talk shouting over music and screams, spraying warm Jägermeister into each other's ears from the shots we were pounding late into the night. I can do this, I told him, grabbing him by the shoulders. He said, you could totally do this. I said, you really think so? He said, I know it, bro, grabbing my shoulders and bringing me closer to him, closing his eyes in his way and pulling my forehead to touch his. You can do this. I said, this is why we met, so you could do this with me. He said, I know, bro, I know. I got my first tattoo in 1991 when I was 30 years old and four years clean and sober. Tattoos weren't a thing for me growing up because my idols didn't have them. As a teenager, I was so enamored of my rock heroes that if Keith Richards or Pete Townsend had tattoos, I would have absolutely gotten one. Instead, I associated tattoos with bikers and convicts. I also didn't like the sight of my own blood, needles, or pain, so tattoos were never on my radar. I was all about rebellion and living like an outsider, but tattoos had such a negative connotation for me that I saw nothing but pain and losers. Until I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley and met a group of sober freaks in San Francisco who were heavily into tattooing and piercing, and who would regularly make fun of me for my East Coast vanity and squeamishness. People on the West Coast were much freer with their bodies and sexuality, and the longer I lived out there, the more I started to get more comfortable with mine. As a goof, they bought me a copy of Research Number 12, Modern Primitives, a seminal book that chronicled the history of body modification from ancient times to the present. Some of the piercings were hard to stomach, and my friends took glee in seeing my reactions as I leafed through it. I didn't even like having a zipper on my jeans. Every type of tattoo, scarification, implant, and body manipulation imaginable was depicted, and much of it was fascinating. I read the chapter on an old tattoo artist named Lyle Tuttle, and I was fascinated by the picture of him being tattooed by hand with a stick in Samoa lying on his stomach, blissfully staring at the camera like someone was rubbing suntan oil on his back at the beach. In another section on traditional tribal tattoos from Samoa, Borneo, and New Zealand, one of the tribal tattoos from the Philippines caught my eye, and I bookmarked the page. A short time later, my father died, and a few months after that, I decided to get that tribal design from the Philippines tattooed on my arm. It was small and shaped like an arc, with cog-like juts coming out of it. I wanted it on my upper arm curving to the shape of my shoulder. I wasn't exactly sure what my motivation was. It might have been to commemorate the loss or maybe to reclaim my body after watching my father's get ravaged by cancer, or to prove to myself that I could take the pain if I had to. Technically, it meant that I couldn't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And though that was certainly a selling point, the simple explanation was that I saw the design in a book and wanted it on me. My sponsor in Narcotics Anonymous had beautiful color tattoos on his arms, like brushed watercolor. And over the years, he'd educated me about the history and possibilities of tattooing. He'd been telling me for years that I was going to eventually get one and was bursting when I told him I decided to. He recommended his favorite artist, Shotzi Gorman. 
I had to make the appointment weeks in advance, which gave me a lot of time to think and worry about it. When the day arrived, I was a bag of nerves. I was fine with other people's pain and blood. I'd seen every manner of bodily fluid and horror when I worked at an AIDS hospice in Greenwich Village during the heart of the pandemic. But the sight of my own blood made me sweaty and woozy. Blood tests, gashed knees, and deep cuts could render me wobbly. Shotzi's tattoo shop was in a strip mall off Route 9 in Wayne, New Jersey. It was my first time inside a tattoo shop, and it was much more mundane than I'd imagined, like a funky hair salon with bad lighting. Tattoo designs called Flash hung all over the walls in large sheets. There were every style imaginable, traditional with bold, colorful images of roses, anchors, and hearts with mother in them, tribal from every corner of the globe, Japanese with large historical stories featuring dragons and ancient lore, new school with its fusing of many styles and art school sensibility, and any other style you could conceive of. There was a small waiting area and four or five rooms for tattooing. The place smelled like a cross between incense and antiseptic soap. Shotzi was a bit gruff, like I was inconveniencing him. I got the feeling he was doing my tattoo as a favor to my sponsor and would typically give a job as simple as my tattoo to a junior artist. But he seemed competent and professional and ready to get it done. I brought in a copy of the design I wanted and he used tattoo transfer paper to make a stencil of it and then placed an impression of it on my arm to use as a guide and to make sure the placement and size was right. The stencil ink rubs right off the skin if it's not right and he did a few before we agreed on the placement. First, he was going to use a tattoo machine with a single needle to do the outline, and then a machine with multiple needles to fill in the black. The tattoo machine has barely changed from the original notion of a rotary stencil pen invented by Thomas Edison in 1876. In 1891, Samuel Riley invented a machine based on Edison's that delivered ink into the skin instead of onto a piece of paper. In 1929, Percy Waters invented the electromagnetic tattoo machine with coils that vibrate. And that machine, with some minor improvements over the years, is the most commonly used today. The magnet makes the coil vibrate, and that pushes the needles up and down like pistons. Shotzi's setup was neat and clean, and you could tell he had done this a thousand times. He wore gloves, everything was individually wrapped, and there was a big autoclave that sterilized the equipment between uses. Though the medical compliance reassured that I was in a safe environment, it also made me a bit nauseous. My first thought when the tattoo machine hit my skin was, hey, that doesn't hurt that much. It felt like someone was scratching my arm, and I was relieved the pain wasn't a big deal and tried to relax. But it was too late to quell my anxiety and within minutes I almost fainted and was lying on the floor doing yoga breathing while Shotzi dabbed my head with a cold compress. I was eventually able to pull myself together and get the piece finished, but it was embarrassing. Shotzi was a top artist and usually did big complex color tattoos and I went down because of a 4 inch by half inch simple tribal tattoo on my upper bicep. The time I was on the floor recuperating was longer than the tattoo took to finish, but Shotzi was cool and didn't make a big deal about it, and I gave him a huge tip. I loved the tattoo. The way it looked, the way it curved along the top of my arm, the contrast of the black ink against my skin, and just the way it felt knowing that it was there. 
It was covered by my t-shirt sleeve, so I'd need to show it to someone for them to see it, but I hadn't gotten it for anyone else. I'd gotten it for me. And despite having told people I only wanted the one tattoo, six months later, I got another one at a shop in Virginia, a Japanese kanji symbol for peace below my tribal piece. And a few months after that, I got the kanji symbol for fighting below the other one. All three tattoos were above my t-shirt sleeve line and only poked below it if I moved a certain way. I didn't want to go below that and wasn't sure about my other arm. The next tattoo was a piece on the side of my calf that was supposed to look like Mercury's wing, but looked more like I'd rub my leg up against some wet black paint that had left a smudge. I didn't do any research on these tattoo shops or artists. I'd just walk in, pick out a design, and get it from the next available artist. And typically, they were the younger ones who didn't quite know what they were doing. Tattooing is a craft and the depth the ink is injected into the skin is crucial for look and longevity of the tattoo. One of the kanji tribal tattoos is still raised and bumpy 30 years later. Sean chuckled when I first showed him my budding collection because it seems everyone's first tattoos suck. Sean did his first tattoo to himself with a sewing needle, and he showed me the barely distinguishable squiggly lines underneath his now full tattooed arm. After Sean did a few tribal pieces on my right arm, including a black tribal piece on my right bicep, with the red Rolling Stones tongue logo entwined in it, I asked him to fix the tattoo on my calf with a cover-up. A good artist can incorporate a bad design into a bigger new design, and most times you can't even recognize the original tattoo. Sean said he was going to be attending the New Orleans Tattoo Convention on Halloween weekend and asked if my wife Betsy and I wanted to join him. We'd hang in New Orleans, he'd do my cover-up, and I'd get to see what a tattoo convention was all about. Betsy and I had never been to New Orleans, and we desperately needed a break. We had been together for four years, had recently married, then my mother got cancer and died young, and then her mother got a terrible cancer diagnosis, and then one of my oldest friends got sick. I had relapsed after ten years clean. Wasn't sure if I wanted to be clean anymore, and was surprisingly comfortable with that decision. I started smoking pot regularly again, much to Betsy's chagrin. She was not only concerned about where smoking pot might lead, but she didn't smoke and thought it might create a wedge between us. I was also playing in high-stakes poker games and was working insane hours taking the consulting company public. After I quit my job, we bought a house in the country in central Massachusetts to be near her mother. The real estate agent who sold us the house was obligated to disclose that a previous owner had alleged an alien abduction at the house, but assured us that the person who alleged abductions in other locations, so the house was safe. We weren't sure about the house, but that sealed the deal for us. Our property included a one-acre plowed field that looked like a landing pad and we'd have fires at night waiting for visitors. Leaving New York City was good for us. We remodeled the house and looked to the future. Betsy liked Sean and the people hanging around his shop. They were more authentic than the people I'd been hanging out with before I quit my job and had varied interests and beliefs. My work in the corporate world had involved many social obligations that Betsy had hated. She was always bored by the one-dimensional, banal conversation she had to endure. In New Orleans, Betsy and I spent Halloween Day visiting one of the St. Louis above-ground cemeteries, as well as a voodoo shop nearby. 
That night, we hung out with Sean and his friends. Bourbon Street was a madhouse, and though I was kind of over drunken crowds by that point in my life, Betsy and I got loaded and had a great time. The next day, we went to the convention so Sean could do the cover-up. I hadn't been to a tattoo convention before, but once you got over the initial novelty of it, it was unremarkable except for the fact that inside the dozens of pipe and drape booths lining the hotel ballroom floor, people were getting tattooed. Streams of people who weren't getting tattooed moved through the tight aisles checking out the artists. There were some vendors selling jewelry and clothing, but once you got through the maze of booths, there wasn't much else to see. If it wasn't for the music and the buzzing and the bleeding, you would think you were at a plumbing fixtures convention. My tattoo should have taken an hour or so, but halfway through I started feeling lightheaded and queasy. A sheen of sweat appeared above my upper lip, and then my mind started racing. Betsy recognized these telltale signs and looked over at me nervously. It was stuffy in the convention center and loud. The buzzing of dozens of tattoo machines was now drowned out by a live rock band playing 20 feet away from Sean's booth. The experience was like getting a medical procedure in the first row at a rock concert. The walls of the booth were only three or four feet high, and people kept streaming by to check Sean's portfolio and see what he was putting on me. I felt like I was in the zoo, and it started freaking me out. I felt like the whole convention hall was starting to spin around me. A guy came by to say hello to Sean who was tattooed from head to toe. He was wearing shorts and no shirt, and there wasn't an inch of him that wasn't tattooed, including his face. There was so much it was hard to discern one image, one piece, from another. He had pus globules tattooed in his armpits that dripped down his arm. He was the freakiest person I'd ever seen, and he and Sean knew each other from going to tattoo conventions. At one point, the guy took his dick out to show Sean a checkerboard he had tattooed on it, and that's when I started feeling untethered. I tried to continue, but Sean could see I was struggling and suggested a break. I told them that the noise and heat and commotion were freaking me out, as well as the checkerboard dick, and that I didn't want to continue. He understood and said we could finish it at his shop when he got back to New York. Betsy was turned off by the whole thing and thought Mr. Checkerboard Dick was a loser, though still more interesting than the jerks from my corporate work. I cautioned her not to disparage him when we met with Sean and some of the other tattoo artists later that night. It was our first convention, and we were new to tattoo culture, and I didn't want to come off as disrespectful or judgmental. We were both relieved when Sean told us he thought the guy was completely nuts and fucked up not at all representative of the tattoo community. I wasn't so sure, but it didn't matter. I wasn't in the tattoo business and didn't see myself going to any more tattoo conventions. That is, until Sean was finishing the tattoo he started and I had the idea for Tattoo the Earth. When I got home from Mother that first night after having the idea, I wrote out my vision in a manic frenzy, like I was taking dictation. I came up with a detailed plan and a framework for starting multiple businesses connected to tattooing. Fresh off being part of the team that took the consulting company public, I knew what had to be done to create a story and what kind of financial plan people would invest in. I listened to music and wrote furiously on a legal pad in between bouts of crying, heaving, guttural body-shaking sobs like I'd never experienced before. And not of sadness but of relief and gratitude. I felt centered and integrated for the first time in my life. I had clarity and purpose. 
Within a few days, I had a 20-page pitch book detailing my plan and a clear vision of what I wanted to create. The pitch book contained an overview of the festival, tattoo industry demographics, magazine ads, and celebrity photos featuring tattoos. It was difficult finding ads featuring body art, and there were still not many celebrities sporting tattoos in 1998. My list included Allen Iverson, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Otzi, the 5,300-year-old frozen Iceman. Tattooing was barely above ground and barely in the mainstream, but I was going to change all that.